This is the CU 2.0 podcast with your host, Robert McGarvey. Big new ideas about credit unions. Big new ideas about credit unions. CU 2.0 podcast. What happens when you throw a bunch of ex-Googlers into an office in San Mateo, California? You might think that's the start of a joke that ends weirdly. It's not. What I'm going to talk about here is a company called Upstart. Upstart is a new breed lending company that helps financial institutions, credit unions very much in in the mix, make more better unsecured loans and also do auto refinancing. Upstart comes at lending with a focus on artificial intelligence, machine learning, and doing a lot of data crunching. This is a bunch of Googlers who created this company. Google is entirely a company about data analytics. Now, using Upstart's analytics, an institution approves a higher percentage of loans, but also enjoys a lower default rate. How can that be? Listen to the podcast. According to Jeff Keltner, who heads business development at Upstart and is himself an ex-Googler, lots of models playing look at the wrong data when making credit decisions. The wrong data. If you look at better data and more data, maybe you can make better credit decisions. More importantly, much of this decision-making is done by machines which are a whole lot cheaper than people. Upstart has a page full of dazzling stats about how its models perform versus traditional lending models. It's quite quite impressive. Check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Another link you'll find in the show notes. 20 years ago, I interviewed the Google founders for MIT's Technology Review magazine. There's a link in the show notes to that story. The wonder of the internet. Stories from 20 years ago are still in print, so to speak, digitally. Listen up. Well, t- tell, me, tell me what you do at your company. Let's start there. Uh, so Upstart's uh, a digital AI-powered lending platform for credit unions and, and banks. I, I can say banks here, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, we really enable them to quickly enter the consumer lending space, particularly un- unsecured consumer loans and uh, auto refinance loans with the kind of end-to-end uh, institution-branded digital experience that's highly optimized and uh, kind of AI-powered uh, underwriting engine that's really kind of the core of helping uh, those institutions identify more credit-worthy applicants within their population. So we can we have a, a model that's much better at understanding risk and then allowing our credit unions to, to price that risk however they like. Now, many credit unions would say, golly, haven't we been doing exactly that for 50 years? They might. Um, you know, I'd say there's really two things that are are really different in my mind. Uh, one is this kind of shift to digital experiences versus more traditional uh, branch powered experiences, right? And the ability to rethink the end to end experience uh, based on those digital technologies. So how can we take not just take the application, but automate the credit decisioning, automate ID verification, income verification, and really reduce the friction versus what was required for a borrower in a, in a more traditional approach. So as an example, um, the partners we work with experience about 70% of the loans, fully no touch, completely automated with very low rates of fraud and misrepresentation. So I think, I think that's a different kind of thing than we've been able to do for the last 50 years. Um, and the other is, you know, applying the machine learning capabilities to uh, understanding credit risk more effectively. I mean, um, credit unions are much better than banks in this area generally in terms of being willing to to delve into consumer lending more holistically. But, you know, even super risky pools of loans that, you know, 
by credit score alone, uh, even a credit union would say, hey, that's a too risky of a segment for us to serve effectively. We know that the vast majority of those consumers actually will repay, right? If it's a 20% loss pool, that's still 80% good applicants. And the ability to, to use AI or machine learning to identify out of that larger pool, which are those 80% that are going to repay and to serve them as opposed to declining the entire segment uh, because of the level of risk that we couldn't identify out. Um, I, I think that's also a new kind of capability that didn't exist even a couple of years ago. Well, and you're looking at some non-traditional metrics for measuring risk, right? That's right. Uh, I would say, you know, the, the, the power of the, the models we built are partially from alternative data points some of those just much deeper looks at historical credit data, right? So if you go from a credit score or five or 10 pieces of information from a credit file down to the trade line level uh, information where you can get hundreds of points of information um, on, on an individual, it turns out that those more detailed looks are much more predictive of loss, right? And especially if you're looking at those points in conjunction with a specific kind of loan, right? Not just like what's a score in general for Jeff, but how risky is a $1,000 loan for Jeff or a 50,000 or a million dollar mortgage, just very different questions. And when you're looking at that more granular question, you can make much, much more precise answers. We also do augment that with some, you know, what, what might be called non-traditional data, particularly around your type of occupation and, and level of education that we find uh, are additive substantially to the ability to predict just on historical credit data, particularly for those who have a more limited credit history, right? Where you're looking for something other than repayment of old loans to indicate the in intention and ability to repay future loans. No, I understand that credit history thing. I wrote an article maybe five years ago about and look, looking at companies that were making loans based upon really odd metrics like a college grade point average. Now, they were aiming at kids in their 20s, so yep. the kids didn't have a credit file. And they, yeah. I remember talking with them, and they said, wow, if you got a B-plus in college, you're probably a pretty responsible person, <laughs> which logically is true. So. Yeah, I mean, we we kind of were inspired a little bit from our history at Google, where you know you would take twenty two year olds with with a college degree, no credit history, and, and like you could predict, you know, who you wanted to hire and who was going to do well in the workforce, and you kind of said, hey, there ought to be some corollary to that for these younger people with no credit history in lending, right? Like if they can get a job as a software engineer at Google, you probably ought to be able to to lend them money. Uh, and so that was one of the kind of inspiration points for our thinking. I do think it's broader than that, though. I mean, if you look at things like um, industry and occupation, there are kinds of occupations that are um, more stable. And so, you know, some of the things our models tend to uh, find to be more credit worthy that, that might be indicated by more traditional metrics or things like nurses, school teachers, firefighters, police officers. So uh, there's lots of little versions of that kind of good college student example, I think. And when you're looking at large data sets, you can identify many, many, many more of them and find large segments of the population that are worthy of credit, even though their credit score might be below a traditional prime number. What kinds of occupations would be indicative of more risk? I don't know. Um, but I, I think there are specific occupations that are indicative of more risk. And of course, the danger in talking about any one or two occupations, and I know I, I singled out a few there, or, or any variable level of education or anything else, is it's really highly dependent on um, the other things that your file says about you, right, as an individual. So I think of it as like multiple ways you can demonstrate creditworthiness. Sometimes it's through a very strong history of repayment on lots of loans, right? So your traditional 
middle-aged, somebody like me in their 40s or 50s who's, who's had a number of loans and repaid them, they've got a very strong way to single, signal creditworthiness, right? But there are other ways that you can indicate that you, your creditworthiness, not just on number of historical loans. So we tend to think of it not in what identifies more risk, but what are the signals we can find for people that indicate creditworthiness and, and how do we use that to be as inclusive as possible? Well, the traditional way of measuring risk, though, I've been intrigued by it because it's basically taking a rear view. Yep. Uh, it's not taking a forward view. That's correct. And perhaps you have an 800 FICO score today, but can you repay that quarter of a million dollar loan tomorrow and next year? Huh. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I use beautiful data in the past, but what does it tell me about the future? You're making a leap there saying, well, the past predicts the future. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, there's, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And again, you've got a big challenge if your past is very different than your future, either in terms of like the macroeconomic environment, or more importantly, the kind of loan the person's applying for, right? Like um, having successfully paid your credit card for 10 years doesn't tell you a lot about a million dollar mortgage, right? Um, and so I think that one of the challenges there is that you're often using the same sets of data across many different loan types to make an assumption about a different kind of loan. And you should really understand what those credit obligations were um, and what they look like. And, and the other part of this, I think that's really interesting is looking at cash flow, right? So being able to not just look at, hey, have you paid loans before? But like, how much do you make? Um, you know, what are the what are the costs uh, that you have outside of, you know, the other debt obligations you have, things like housing and, and food? And, you know, is there, you know, at the, at the end of the day, enough cash to pay, um, the the bill that would be represented by this debt obligation. And so I think that's like a pretty additive thing to just traditional creditworthiness or you know history of repaying loans, if you will, that, that's really helpful and a little more, I don't know if I call it exactly forward-looking, but it is a little more directly on point with the question of, do you have the capacity to repay the specific obligation we're considering as a creditor? Now, right now, and over the past few years, there seems to, in my mind, be almost a traffic jam of alternative lenders coming on the scene. Mm -hmm. What's Will there be that same traffic jam a few years from now? We're going into a different kind of economic environment, I think. Yeah, we're certainly uh, going into, what's that old Warren Buffett quote? You never know who's swimming naked till the tide goes out. Um, I think we're certainly possibly, we saw some version of some stress in the macroeconomic perspective through the COVID uh, experience, you know, the, through the pandemic, I do think that was from an actual credit losses point of view, substantially offset by uh, government intervention. Right, so you didn't actually see losses accelerate the way you might have expected from things like unemployment increases, but you did see a lot of entry into hardship. So there was some ability to look at, you know, wh where were portfolios stressed from a forbearance or hardship point of view, uh, and in were the alternative variables and models predictive. Um, so I think. You know, as we as we look at maybe more challenging economic times over the next couple of years, at least a little more challenging credit times, you'll see some separation of, you know, different kinds of lenders and approaches that are that are really performing well and showing highly predictive um, power, and and those that are that are not really separating from more traditional approaches. So I think you'll see some separation um, over the next period of time, and and you'll see how people deal with the question of macroeconomic instability, right? Like as as rates go up. Uh, as maybe um, the defaults go up, 
uh, in certain portfolios, what kind of levers do uh, lenders have or for us, the partners to lenders have to help them kind of control for the larger macroeconomic picture? And, and can you do that effectively? Uh, I think that'll be a, a really big question over the next couple of years and probably will shake out the you know those who have really strong and performing models from those that don't. Now, what, what, what's the loan range, dollar amount that you do? Yeah. So the, the credit unions and banks we work with, we're powering um, typically two kinds of programs with them. One is unsecured debt. Um, and that's, you know, that's one to $50,000 range, but you can think of the typical being 10 to 15,000, depending on the population of the, of the individual institution. Uh, and that's, you know, 70 or 80% credit card consolidation, uh, so, you know, reducing interest costs on, on existing debt uh, and then some mixture of other large purchases, uh, you know, moving across the country, whatever, that, that kind of thing. Um, so that's one. And the second, the area that we really work with our partners in is in automobile lending, particularly auto refinance lending. Um, and those are obviously a little bit larger loan sizes on average. Um, so in, in the auto refi space, and then we also have the ability to help them work in the direct auto purchase space. That's kind of a, a newer and growing area for us. So each of those has slightly different, uh, sizes and interest rates and that kind of thing. But, but you can think of them roughly in those categories. Now autos would be secured loans, right? And the, that's other, correct. the other kind would not be secured. Yeah. So the, the unsecured loan, the personal loan is definitely just an unsecured consumer debt. The auto loans are secured. Uh, and you know, it's we've one of the things we do help our partners with is the automation where possible, but at least simplification of the process of securing and perfecting the lien, which, uh, as you probably know, is, is quite challenging when you're trying to do it digitally uh, across all 50 states. It's it's not an easy thing to do, and there's real variance in terms of you know electronic lien and title transfer, uh, wet signatures or not in different jurisdictions. So it's something we work very hard to make simple for our partners. Now, one of the cool things about technology is that it's made it pretty easy to do small dollar loans and still make money at them. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you'd gone into Wells Fargo with an 800 FICO score and said, I want to borrow $2,000 personal loan, they would have said, get out of here. <laughs> just, just no money in that loan. Put it on your credit card, okay? Yeah, yeah. You don't have a credit card here. Let me give you a credit card. Put it on that. I don't want to deal with a $2,000 loan. I'm going to lose money doing it. Whereas yeah. now tech, the technology allows you to do that sort of dollar amount. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And that's, you know, if you think about the, the stat I gave you earlier, about 70% of loans coming through with no human review, right? That That's important for two reasons, really, right? One is that when you don't ask people to upload a photo of their ID or, or send you their bank statements, whatever, you convert them at a much higher rate to a closed loan, which lowers your costs, right? Uh, so we see going from even a single document to upload like an ID or, or a W-2 or a bank statement to none to be a between two and three X increase in conversion rate from offered to, to funded loan. So that, that's a pretty big improvement, but it's also importantly, a huge reduction in cost, right? So yeah, you're right. If somebody was walking into the branch and sitting down with a loan officer and filling out the paperwork, like you're probably lost money by the time they walked out the door because you're not going to earn enough in interest on a $2,000 loan to cover the cost of that person. But where you can automate that and have that be just a technology cost, well, now you now the cost base is a lot lower, right? And you can actually do that reasonably profitably, even for smaller dollar loans. So I think it is. It's also one of the areas where I think, as credit unions or banks look at moving to digital, you know, I, I see some digitization efforts that are take the old process and put a digital front end on it, 
right? Which would be like, yeah, we've got a digital application, but then it it emails it to the loan officer and we go through the same manual process. And that's not going to save you the kind of money you need to make these sorts of loans profitable versus saying, hey, we've automated the underwriting. We've automated through third-party integrations, uh, ID verification and, and fraud detection. And so we can really limit the number of times we need to talk to the person or review documentation to support what they've claimed in their application. And that kind of rethinking of process with digital capabilities is what leads you to the kinds of opportunities to unlock this. I'd say the same thing, by the way, is often true of auto refinance lending, that the margins are thin and the costs, particularly with the lean perfection costs are high. And so it's kept a lot of lenders out of the space because it's just hard to make money. And technology is opening up that opportunity to reduce those costs to the point where those things can be profitable products. Now, how many credit unions are you working with? I don't know the latest number, Robert. We're somewhere on the order of 40 banks and credit unions working with us on the platform today. And I, I actually don't offhand know the mix between the two. Sorry, I, sh- I should know that. But that's well, I'm, before I called you, before I called, I, I saw that you have Patelco as a client, which that's correct. I've always admired what Patelco did in t- terms of being innovative and creative. So that kind of sold me right there. So, <laughs> <laughs> a valuable customer then. Uh, for, for, from my perspective, it really gave you a good credential. Thank you. Now, what's what's up? How, how does a credit union get integrated with you? Yeah, the, the integration process is pretty simple. I mean, um, we, we really have the tech technology branded for the credit union, but right from application intake all the way through the processing, uh, verification, KYC, closing digital signature. So really the, the integration consists of a daily, you know, either API or, or file-based integration of approved loans and information on customers. And, and so that's pretty straightforward. Um, there are more detailed integrations on the servicing side or the data reporting side, but we often find credit unions taking a kind of start simple and, and integrate over time as the portfolio grows and the importance of the product grows to them. Um, but we, we often find that limiting integrations in the name of getting to market quickly is is of even more value to our partners, uh, at least these days, right? You're seeing an environment with you know, high degrees of cash on balance sheet, low degrees of demand for traditional loan products. And so the ability to, to get in market quickly is highly valued by our partners. And we really focus on helping them get into market, you know, 30, 60, 90 days after, you know, signing a contract, which we think is, is really valuable to them right now in particular. Do you need any integration with the credit union's core system? We, we provide the opportunity to integrate. We don't require it. Um, and so typically that integration is bringing the loans that have been originated uh, through our platform into the core. And then we provide the information regularly for our credit union partners to do that. Some do that. Um, some don't, uh, at least to start, right? And then we do have the ability to take information either out of the core or out of a CRM system and you know, kind of pre-populate application information with stuff, with information you already have on consumers that are your existing customers. Uh, and we do both have the ability to support a credit union's existing members and to bring them new members through some of the at-scale nationwide marketing that we do uh, on the consumer side. And so there's usually a combination of you know, integration with information about your current customers to simplify their experience, and then integration with um, you know, bringing in the information about new members that are found through the Upstart referral network into the core so they can be offered other products and served in branch and things like that. Now, does the credit union member know that they're dealing with you or is this white label? For the credit union member, it's white label. So they really don't know that they're dealing with us. 
Um, for the new members, we are running at scale national, national marketing to upstart.com. And so those consumers will start at upstart, enter their information, and then be matched with one of the credit unions or banks in our lending network. So they'll, they'll know that they started at upstart for sure. And then they'll, you know, from their perspective, we're directing them to one of our partners and they're going to close that loan with the credit union. So they will also, those new members will see that, although they will obviously have a, a knowledge of Upstart's, uh, you know, role in the process because they start their experience at upstart.com. They're generally responding to marketing that's done in the name of Upstart. And then we're matching them with, with one of our partners, depending on where they're physically located, the credit policies of our, our various lenders, that kind of thing. Now it's the credit union's money that's being lent, right? It is the credit union's money that's being lent. And I will say, you know, we talked about credit underwriting and, and the way we do that. Um, there's really a couple levels of control we give those credit unions since it is their money being lent, to your point. Uh, and those are really that they set a credit policy. So kind of like minimum credit score, maximum debt to income ratio, that kind of thing. So they've got they get their kind of policy and controls around the kinds of loans they want to support, the minimum and maximum loan amounts that they want to support. Uh, and then the pricing strategy is really up to the credit union. Uh, our, our models are tuned to, de- to predict risk, risk of default per month of the loan, risk of prepayment, which also obviously affects the economics of lending if people pay back early at every month in the loan, and then to allow the credit union to specify what kind of return they would want on a dollar at that, at that given level of risk. So they're really controlling the pricing to the consumer. It's just our job to tell them how risky that loan is and then how they want to price that's entirely up to the credit union. How do you measure risk of prepayment? Well, we predict it. Um, you know, so for each individual loan, what the models do is make a prediction on the likelihood of within each month uh, for, and this is done per loan amount and term. So, you know, my risk as a consumer for a default on a one thousand dollar three year loan or a two thousand or a three thousand, all different, right? Um, and so we're predicting for each month of the term for each amount of loan and duration, what the likelihood is that that borrower pays on time, that that borrower misses the payment and doesn't recover, or that that borrower makes a full payment early. And so once we've got each of those three predictions, that's done based on uh, you know the billions of dollars of loans that have historically come through our, our network and with our partners. Uh, so once those predictions are made, we can then say, hey, if you want a 5% IRR, 6% IRR, this is the interest rate we need to charge the consumer in order for you to attain, obtain that. So that we're really predicting each of those. And again, based on historical loans that our partners have made. So we're looking at all the data we have on the consumer and then predicting what we think that repayment stream is going to look like for each of them, um, given that history. That's fascinating. I, I didn't know that that kind of technology existed. I, I well, it, we built some of it, so it didn't always exist in advance. And it, it was interesting, you know, you think about the accuracy of credit models. And one of the biggest leaps we ever made was moving from um, a single default prediction, right, with a standard timing curve overlaid on it, right, into what we called the, the loan month model at the time, which was predicting uniquely the probability of default per month of the loan. And that was like not an obvious thing. We had to build some technology on how to do that because it's it's not a standard approach, but it, inc- it increased the accuracy of the model so much. And the way we always think of accuracy is um, given that many more people are credit worthy than most people approve, most lenders approve, when we increase accuracy, we can increase approvals and lower interest rates for people who are already approved because we found a few more of the people who are going to default, we were able to decline those people or, or, or get them into lower loan sizes that they could you know, support. And that allows us to uh, increase approval rates and decrease interest rates. So we always view accuracy as, 
is what we're aiming for because it allows our partners to serve more of their customers and to serve them with lower rates. And that's really the true north for us of what we want to help do for consumers. Well, it's, it's an interesting broad view. I mean, I had a 30-year mortgage, which was originated by Bank A, sold to Bank B. <laughs> Uh, I paid that off in eight years. Uh, and you can imagine at today's interest rates, Bank B probably lost money on that deal. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's, and my intention always was to pay it off in a very short period of time. And I just wanted the flexibility that a 30-year note gave me. Yeah. That, uh, and prepayments are, I don't want to say they're a bad thing, but when you're looking at your economics as the lender, they're not a good thing to your economics, right? Like if all your good borrowers pay you back in half the time, well, you know, you need to understand that so you can price overall to those borrowers and others to, to obtain the economic returns that you need as a lender, right? And so it's important for a lender to understand both the risk of, of default and delinquency uh, and, the, and the risk of prepayment, at least in terms of pricing loans. You're not going to decline somebody because they're going to prepay, right? But you may say, hey, I, you know, if you're only going to pay interest for six months, I, I need a little bit more interest than I would over 12 or 24 so that I can actually be profitable on that loan. And so it is important, we think, to be able to predict both because they are really important to understanding the economics for the lender. Now, how, how many years have you been making loans? <laughs> well, I want to say we, we don't we don't originate loans, right? We work with credit unions right, and banks right. to do that. So we don't, my lawyers will get upset if I say we you know originate loans, but but we launched the platform in um, in 2014. And the, the company was founded in 2012, and the first loans were originated in 2014. So we're, as a company, almost 10 years old and have been in the in the unsecured space for you know, about eight of those years, actually, uh, you know, originating loans with our partners. Now, what kind of default rate do you have? Well, that's a it's a good question. I'm going to duck it a little bit. I mean, you could think of it as as mid single digits overall, but all of our partners have the ability to specify both a you know, credit score limit, a DTI limit, which they think of as limiting risk to a certain extent, but also kind of a maximum risk tolerance. And, and we'll work with them to understand risk distribution and what the overall portfolio loss rate would be at any given maximum loss. They say, we just don't, Jeff, above X percent likely to default, we don't want to make a loan. Uh, so we'll say, okay, if you set it there, then your portfolio will kind of look like this. Uh, and so each lender has a different answer to that question because each lender has a different risk tolerance. Um, we as a platform have some lenders who sell loans off into the capital markets, right? And uh, for those loans, obviously the risk tolerance is much higher in the capital markets than it is for most lenders who are keeping those on their balance sheets, right? A credit union or a bank that wants to keep loans on their balance sheet doesn't have the same kind of risk tolerance at, at any kind of return, frankly, that maybe a hedge fund does that's buying loans in the capital markets. And so we have some programs that have a you know higher loss rate because they've got a capital source with, with more risk tolerance. We have other programs that are targeting two or 3% losses, right? Where they want to have a quite low loss rate. And, and the, the goal, again, the goal of our model is to help you predict and manage that risk. How much risk you want to take on and how you want to price that risk is entirely up to the individual lenders on the platform. Have you seen a change in appetite for subprime auto loans? And I ask because I've talked to a number of credit unions that have told me they're beginning to really lower their their uh, credit score requirements for a secured auto loan. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to I want to be careful with, with the word subprime because I think there's you know a lot of what our model does is say people who look subprime from a purely credit score point of view there are really good borrowers in there. There's obviously percentage wise the percentage of borrowers that are, are low risk is lower 
in a lower credit score segment. But there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of consumers who have credit scores that don't reflect their true credit worthiness. And, and that's a lot of what our model does. So a lot, every, not every lender, but many of the lenders that come onto our platform over time start to, if they said, Jeff, I, I don't want to go below 680. You know, they'll call me back in, in a couple of months and say, hey, uh, Upstart team, um, you, you keep telling me the 660 to 680 is really good. Let's try that. Or maybe the 640 to 660. And, and so you see them kind of beginning to trust the model more and say, hey, just let me tell you what my risk tolerance is. And then you find me the good borrowers wherever they may be. And I certainly think, particularly again now where you see a, a lack of traditional loan demand and, and many credit unions sitting on more capital than they can effectively deploy and looking at asset purchases and things, the desire to maybe find ways to reduce their credit scores and get into lending directly to consumers that they might have traditionally avoided, particularly if they can find partners or, or ways to identify the, the good risk borrowers in those pools. I think that's something every lender I talk to, credit unions, community banks, most of them are looking at ways to do that and are open to the idea that there are, are real opportunities for them that are within their risk appetite in those segments. Now, why do traditional credit models exaggerate the risk of some borrowers? I mean, I, I, I believe what you're saying is true, that you can use different metrics and say, well, no, this person's really not half as risky as you think he is. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just the nature of a few things. One is using a, a, a common score across all types of loans. Because again, my risk on a $5,000 loan and a $5 million mortgage, just you can't represent them as one number. I could be an incredibly good credit risk for one and a terrible credit risk for the other, right? And there's no great way to use a, one or two variables to do that. So I just, I don't think there's a great way to do that. And I don't know that they exaggerate risk. I think one of the reasons we haven't seen as much innovation in the credit underwriting space is because if your view of the goal of a credit model is to help you predict losses in a portfolio and manage them, even an inaccurate model can do that, right? It just does that by turning away many more good people than it has to. But if your goal is to keep losses at 3%, you can do that with a credit score or a pretty simple model. Um, and if you're not you know, worried about all the people that you could have said yes to, it will seem like it's doing its job very well. And I think that focus has really been on managing the level of risk in the portfolio with less of a focus on maximizing the number of people we can say yes to within that risk. And that's really where the mindset shift happens. And you start to realize that, you know, the model is just not that good at differentiating good from bad. And there's a lot of people that are kind of in the middle, right? A, you know, a, a near prime FICO, let's say a 640, something like that credit score. It might look like a 15 or 20% risk borrower. In my mind, that's just inaccuracy, right? That's it, That pool may actually have that lift, lift risk rate. Um, but ultimately, a proper credit model is our one of our as our co-founder Paul likes to say would would only lend to people who are going to pay you back and would charge everybody the lowest interest. So whenever you see twenty percent, that's really the model saying I'm not really sure, right? Um, and so you know, we a more accurate model just allows you to start serving that larger population. And I just don't think the industry is focused on it because from a risk management point of view, the current system was working. It was just working at the expense of many consumers who couldn't get access to credit. Right. And particularly for a credit union, a credit union does not want to say no. It actually That's wants right. to say yes. doesn't want to lose money, however. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a bit of a collision here. <laughs> yeah. And so. I think I think part of this, too, is remember that the kinds of techniques we use um, require huge amounts of data, 
large, um, large processing capacity. And some of the models are pretty new in terms of um, just the, the, the functional machine learning capabilities are being progressed at a really uh, accelerated rate. So I think, you know, it's only been a handful of years where the kind of um, underwriting opportunities that we're able to see uh, and unlock have been available just from a technological point of view. And so I, I think you're at this kind of inflection moment um, where the technology is now available to do so much more accurate a job of, of understanding risk and thereby expanding access to and lowering the cost of credit that I think it's just going to be a, a really magical moment and period of time while that technology is applied. And in some ways, you know, I think the model was working for credit use. In other ways, I just say, you know, in, technology wasn't really there to make this easily accessible for most lenders in a way that it is today. And so that's, a, to me, a really exciting time, right, to be able to take these new technologies and apply them to this age-old problem of lending and produce really dramatically better results, both for the institutions and for the consumers. Well, go back in time. The original Google idea mm-hmm. was that when we show... Jeff an ad where we know he's going to be interested in it. How do we know that? Because he just looked for damn Maldives resort vacations. That's right. <laughs> so he's going to love this ad. Whereas if you show it to me, I, I have no interest because I haven't been looking. And that's the, the original essence of, of Google. And it was making decisions based upon real accurate data that was pretty much real time. Well, it was, it was a, I mean, it was a very different model than what you see in a lot of digital advertising today, because it was very much, you know, explicit interest as provided by the user, right? When you go to Google search and you see an ad related to the thing you searched for, Google didn't have to do a lot of fancy math to figure out what you were interested in. You told them, you went in and typed Hawaii vacation and they went, well, it didn't take a genius to figure out that you were interested in going to Hawaii for vacation. And so in many ways, it was a relatively simple model that the much more sophisticated things that are done on Facebook or Google now are places where they're placing ads um, in content where they don't have an expressed interest from the consumer at that moment in time about what they're looking for. And they're trying to, to use what they know about you to identify the best ads to show you. And that's a very different problem, but you're right. The original one was like the borrower just came, the, the user, sorry, just came in and told you what they wanted. Uh, and, and Google's job was to kind of match it up with the best set of ads, but it was a pretty explicitly expressed uh, desire or interest. So what percentage of a credit union's lending portfolio do you tend to handle? You know, that's not a huge percentage to be honest right now. I mean, if you think about just the categories of loans we're doing, uh, unsecured consumer loans, not a huge percentage, you know, single digits, maybe 10%. Um, some some want to go a little bigger, maybe fifteen or twenty percent, but typically it's it's smaller. Um, and then auto, I think auto refine, auto purchase lending, as we're getting, those are newer businesses for us, and they're and they're growing. And I think the portion of the the balance sheet that we're working uh, with the credit union on will grow as those products become a larger part of the mix for them because they're obviously a little more traditional core. And I think all lenders are are a little um, like to keep at least some decent portion of the portfolio it's secured and having some collateral behind it. Well, I think a lot of credit unions had gone deep into indirect auto lending. And over time, yep. many of them became disappointed with the results they were getting. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, indirect is tough. Uh, that's one of the reasons we started in, in refi, because we think, you know, anytime you can bring a consumer uh, on and save them money versus what they're already spending, that's a pretty good, <laughs> that's a pretty good product. Well, credit unions also were hoping they could convert that indirect auto borrower into a real honest to God member. And oftentimes that just simply didn't happen. 
So what was the point of doing this loan in the first place? It's um, often the answer was ain't much point. <laughs> so, Particularly at the compressed margins that a lot of those, uh, a lot of those auto auto uh, indirect loans end up on. They're, yes. they're pretty small margin. Yeah. Well, the margin makes sense if you're going to get a full fledged member out of it who has a, has a checking account, a savings account, a credit card with you, a bunch of things like that. Then it's a good deal. If all you have is that one piece of paper on a car, it's not a good deal. <laughs> a little tougher to make the numbers work. So, so now why why did your company? Were you originally planning to to work with banks and credit unions when the company was founded, or was that a a, a pivot? No, we always work with banks and credit unions. We we really had one bank partner for the first number of years of our history, and I think a lot of that to us was the necessity required to prove out the very different way we were handling, um, you know, both credit underwriting. Like we needed to we needed to go and take capital that was a little more risk tolerant uh, and a new approach and kind of prove out the people that this was really working was really predictive um, that we could get regulators on board with the way this was being done. And so there was a little while of like kind of building up a history enough to be um, to be able to go to a wider array of banks and credit unions. And so that was, you know, we really from day one, the first loans were originated by a bank. Um, and we've continued to have that ethos. We, we did not want to be in the kind of neobank, challenger bank, competitor to banks and credit unions. We really felt like what we wanted to be was a technology provider powering that, but also that in this kind of space, handling things as critical as you know, fraud prevention, ID and, and KYC, and identity verification and credit underwriting. When, when we're trying to handle those capacities, we really have to build up the history to be able to prove to institutions that we know what we're doing. And so we took a little bit of a circuitous path to being broadly speaking, uh, you know, a technology provider to credit unions and banks, but that was always kind of the vision we had of where we wanted to end up. Speaking broadly, there's two kinds of fintechs. There's ones that want to cooperate with existing financial institutions and ones that simply want to replace them. Yeah, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with either, frankly, Robert. I mean, just the ones that want to replace them, I think, are ultimately, as many have started to do, they're banks. They might be banks without legacy technology investment, um, you know, banks that are kind of starting from a fresh sheet of paper, providing a more limited set of things. But ultimately, they're, you know, that's a that's a great path. I think uh, some innovation in the banking space is great, but but we always viewed ourselves and to your point, the second camp, which is, you know, we I've always felt like if you're a fintech, you either need to become a financial institution or you need to be, uh, you know, technology provider powering financial institutions. And we've always felt like the second category was where uh, where we fit. You know, coming from an enterprise technology background at Google, our executive team really viewed what we were doing as building the technology for a more modern experience in banking. But we wanted to use that capability to, to power the experiences of traditional financial institutions. Before we go, think hard about how you can help support this podcast so we can do more interviews with more thoughtful leaders in the credit union world. What we're trying to figure out here in these podcasts is what's next for credit unions. What can they do to really, really, really make a difference in the financial scene? Can't all be mega banks, can it? It's my hope it won't all be mega banks. It'll always be a place for credit unions. That's what we're discussing here. So figure out how you can help. Get in touch with me. This is RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Robert McGarvey again. That's RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Get in touch. We'll figure out a way that you can help. We need your support. We want your support. We thank you for your support. The CU 2.0 Podcast.